If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a one-time or reoccurring donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate tab in the menu. Donations made to Mayflower's Communications Fund are tax-deductible and help ensure that this podcast is available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. Will you pray with me? The world is very loud right now, Holy One. Gunshots on another school campus, prison doors, slamming shut the pounding of hammers as reproductive health clinics are boarded up. The noise is almost deafening, leaving us feeling defeated. So we are grateful that the soundtrack of this season includes carols that declare silent nights to be holy nights, that claim even the little drummer boy had a gift worth sharing, and insists that hope will make this weary world rejoice. Help us, Holy One, to hear the good news. Tune our hearts to the notes of peace, hope, joy, and love, and then help us carry the melody. We pray in the name of Jesus, who was, who is, and who is to come. Amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius, ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Ananias and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees, 
Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then should we do? In reply, he said to them, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him, teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what should we do? He said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be satisfied by, with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. This Sunday is supposed to be about joy. But despite going to church every time the doors were open during my entire childhood, earning two theological degrees and pastoring for 10 years, I've never heard anyone describe John the Baptist as joyful. <laughs> Buddy the Elf is joyful. John the Baptist is more Debbie Downer. And in this story, John the Baptist is hurling hard words at the people, calling them snakes and speaking of the axes ready to cut them down like trees. Joyful? I think the lectionary did not understand the assignment. But so as not to play hide the ball, when we have been convinced by systems of domination that we either don't need each other, or that the suffering of one doesn't contribute to the suffering of all, or that we can somehow be part of the destruction without it killing us, to be called back to the truth of love, which is what John was doing, is indeed a joyful thing. But let's not pretend that it is obvious from the text. While it is difficult, if not impossible, to discern the tone of a written text, it is unlikely that this sermon, which starts, you brood of vipers, came across as joyful. Usually, preachers, we, we, we try to begin with a joke, ease people in, come up with a clever hook. I, I mean, what was John the Baptist thinking with that kind of opener, or the rest of the sermon, for that matter? Clearly, John the Baptist couldn't have cared less about people getting their feelers hurt and withholding their tithes and offerings. They didn't laugh either. The first service didn't laugh. It's fine. It's fine. I'm going to keep it in there. As students of homiletics, the opening line is just the beginning of why this sermon is interesting. Analyzing it is fascinating. As preaching professor Fred Craddock explained in his book, As One Without Authority, there are several ways preachers 
approach the formation of a sermon, including a stock of proven and standard patterns like major premise, minor premise, conclusion, or three points and a poem, or preachers will let the shape of the text carry over into the sermon in the form of a prayer or a proverb, a pronouncement or a blessing. Or the preacher will design the sermon around whatever the form of the text achieves, like praise, correction, judgment, encouragement, defense, reconciliation, or instruction. It doesn't seem like John the Baptist was using any of those approaches. Instead, it seems that he chose another factor that is often operative in the process of sermonizing, and that is the pastor's sense of the congregation's need. The need, which is in mind here, Craddock continues, is not that of a particular topic or issue or text, but a need in respect to the congregation's general situation in life or mindset towards themselves and their context. In, in other words, does the pastor feel the need to support or subvert the parishioner's present attitude or behavior? For instance, one does not address the grieving at a funeral with a novel or clever or surprise ending sermon. Neither does the preacher make heavy intellectual or emotional demands on the listeners at funerals, or at least they shouldn't. This is what makes altar calls at a funeral so egregious and emotionally abusive. <laughs> on the other hand, a pastor also knows if the congregation has been lulled into an unquestioned, unconfronted, unchallenged, and perhaps uninformed life in which attitudes and actions have not heard the gospel and needs to. In such a case, the pastor as preacher will no doubt seek to subvert the attitude or apathy or behavior, and this seems to be John the Baptist's approach. Luke tells us that the crowd came to be baptized by John, but doesn't go into more detail about their motivation. Throughout scripture, the wilderness is often a place where human need encounters God's provision, and John the Baptist must have used this as a context clue for his sermon direction, for indeed the crowd had come out from the city into the wilderness to hear him. It's possible the crowd was aware of the ways they had broken covenant with God and with each other, including the command to love God and neighbor. And we often know when this happens to ourselves as well, we just aren't always sure how to fix it. It's also possible that the people feared the costs of their failures and were looking for a way out. John more than hints that he knows this is part of their need when he compares them to snakes wriggling away from danger. At the very least, they had made it clear that they thought it safe to rely on their ancestors' long prior relationship with God. That's the we have Abraham argument that John the Baptist anticipates. But John warns them, as Professor Audrey West writes, he warns them against abusing the privilege of family tree. So if 
anyone thought that ancestry, ethnicity, place of origin, language, or any other status marker or identity, like longest church membership or giver of the largest tithe, if anyone thought those things allowed them to lord it over others or let them off the hook, John severs those notions at the root. Apparently, this was the particular sermon that congregation needed. John read the room. John nails it. We know because of what happens in the receiving line on the way out, despite his challenging message, despite not playing it safe, despite the absolute absence of any bedside manner from John the Baptist, the congregation's response is every preacher's dream. What then shall we do? It is not great sermon preach. It is not that. What then shall we do? This is when we expect perhaps the pianist to quietly begin playing just as I am. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. That is not what happens. John the Baptist does not proceed with an altar call. He does not invite folks to walk down the aisle and accept Jesus into their heart as their Lord and Savior, primarily because he is Jewish. <laughs> but also, also because... God's salvation has never been about getting a ticket into an all-inclusive afterlife resort and spa. And that is because the good news, the gospel, is only personally salvific when it is socially redemptive. The gospel is only personally salvific if it is socially redemptive. John the Baptist makes that clear. He does not tell the crowd to recite a creed or use a particular translation of scripture or slap a sticker of their church logo on their minivan. John the Baptist does not instruct any of them to do anything wildly, well, wild. Despite announcing impending doomsday eschatological judgment if people don't course correct, his advice to what then shall we do is rather ordinary, mundane even. He tells them to work to make the world right, right where they are. This is the road to salvation. Share, be fair, don't bully. This may seem elementary, but perhaps that is exactly the point. Everyone can do this. These opportunities are shaped by our context, the roles in which we find ourselves, the needs of our neighbors, and the systems of domination that need dismantling. Too often we think of activism as faithfulness, only as big, flashy, headline-making undertakings. But, but not all of us are called to chain ourselves to bulldozers to protest pipeline development. <laughs> Few of us are called to rappel off the side of a building to hang a protest banner. Only some of us are called to engage in direct action civil disobedience. But all of us 
are called to everyday discipleship every dang day. The roles mentioned in this story are not particularly fancy. A crowd of people who were poor, tax collectors, and soldiers. To the crowd, John says, share. Scarcity was the narrative of the day, then and now. So for those who have what they need, share. This will disrupt the narrative that there isn't enough to go around because there is. Share. To the tax collectors, John said, be fair. Collect no more than the prescribed amount. Direct taxes were collected by tax collectors and employed by the Romans, and they paid in advance for the right to collect tolls. So the system was open to abuse and corruption, but John instructs them to disrupt the system by being fair. To the soldiers, John tells them, don't bully. The soldiers in this story were probably not Romans, but local mercenaries serving the Herods or the Roman procurator. The practice of exhorting, extorting payments by threats was apparently common. Even Josephus records that he had to warn troops to avoid theft and extortion and to be extent, content with their rations. Since a soldier's allowance was minimal, there may have even been the expectation that they would supplement it by extortion. But John tells them, no, don't, don't do that. Don't bully. And in doing so, you will disrupt the status quo. Share, be fair, don't bully. Food and clothing are to be shared with people who have none. Taxes are not to be calculated according to the greed of the people who are in power. And the military must stop victimizing the people under their occupation with constant threats, intimidation, and blackmail. Share, be fair, don't bully. That's the roadmap to salvation. And it's good that we have some direction because we are in serious need of salvation in these United States. Last week, a $768 billion defense bill was passed, which was $24 billion over what was requested and an increase from the previous year, despite the fact that the Biden administration had ended a war. And yet, that level of support for things like paid family leave, housing, care work, and education were deemed impossible. And just in case one might think I favor one party over another, let me not so gently remind us that bill was passed by the Democrat-controlled House. Our primary identity should not be as loyal partisans but as faithful politicos working to build a world of justice, equity, and peace. What then shall we do? Everything we can on our smaller stages to make paid family leave, housing, care work, and education priorities. For specific ideas, I suggest that you join one of the small groups that meet on Sunday mornings or webs on Wednesday evening, and you could, hear me out, actually invite people who are sitting around you right now to go to lunch or grab a coffee 
and then you can talk about it together, figure out that next faithful step as iron sharpens iron, you know. We've got work to do, but we have to do it, not say we believe in it, but do it. And perhaps this is one of the most important pieces of this story. At no point does John the Baptist advise the crowd to jump ship, move out of state, or give up. He does not call the tax collectors to sever their relationship with Rome, nor are the soldiers told to quit their jobs. They are called to serve where they are, to take a stand for their neighbor amid, rather than apart from, the turbulence and trouble of the present age, and to do good because of, rather than in spite of their positions. And so we, are called to serve where we are, to take a stand for our neighbor amid the turbulence and trouble of our present age, to do good right where we are in the positions we hold as teacher, consultant, lawyer, parent, caregiver, librarian, doctor, administrator, accountant, voter, pastor, small business owner, retiree, custodian, student, manager, trusted adult, Uber driver, constituent, neighborhood association member, nurse. What then shall we do? Share, be fair, don't bully. Church, we have our assignment. I'll see you out there. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. with Sunday school classes for all ages at 10 a.m. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.